The scripture reading for today is from Mark chapter 14, verses three through nine, and you can follow along in your bulletin or of course in your Bibles. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for, for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to all of you. So good to see you on this communion Sunday. I was, I was so moved by the, the, uh, the time of singing that we just had and the time of confession, and it struck me, I don't know whether you noticed in this story, this woman that came and she just sort of, she just poured out herself, and we're gonna try to make sense of that story this morning and that, that real picture of devotion. But one of the things I, I saw and experienced during our worship time, that in a way, that is, that is our way of pouring out ourselves on the Lord in response to the way that he has poured out himself on us, and so, if you were engaged in that worship time and that time of confession, I almost feel like I don't need to preach, but we need to do something with the rest of our time, so I'll go ahead and give my, give my sermon. We're gonna talk this morning about the topic of devotion, the topic of passion, the topic of heart, to talk about some of the things that we love, and I wonder if you, um, well, I'll just, I'll just say this. Last week, I was visiting, uh, Molly and I were visiting some friends of ours who happened to, to be fans of the North Carolina Tar Heels basketball team. So uh, last night, they played Duke. It was epic. It was, it was amazing that they were playing. And one of the things I noticed, by the way, and I realize not everybody here is a basketball fan. I realize you're not as, as jazzed by that. But last week, I was around a North Carolina fan, we were going over the house for dinner, and what they had on the TV was the game. Uh, they knew all the details, they were so excited, they couldn't wait for the game last night with Duke, it was just so epic. And if you know anybody who is a fan of March Madness, anybody that's a fan of, uh, of North Carolina basketball, you have a picture of what passion looks like. You have a picture of what devotion looks like. Well, what are you devoted to in your life? I think this, uh, as I think about, you know, I'm, I wasn't as passionate about the game last night. In fact, I didn't watch the game, but I checked my ESPN app just to see how it was going because I was still interested in that, that epic sports contest. But I'm passionate about a lot of things. I'm passionate about, um, I'm passionate about New York Yankees baseball, for example. I'm passionate about travel, I'm passionate about reading history, I'm passionate about good food, I'm, I'm passionate about dinner with good friends. There's a lot of things that get my heart pumping that get me excited. 
But this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to, I think all those are great things. There's a lot of things that we're all excited about and passionate about. But what I want to talk about this morning is the devotion of our hearts to Jesus. I want to talk about this passage as a way of cultivating our love for God, of cultivating our affection for Jesus. And I wonder if you've thought about that in your life. I've wondered if you, I wonder if you've thought about the state of your heart. I've wondered if you've, you've experienced Jesus being the supreme love of your life. Have you ever thought about that? About what it's like for Jesus to be the supreme love of your life? We're gonna take a moment and we're gonna, we're gonna uh, just pray about that for just a second before we get into this text. But I wanna read you a quote from your bulletin. It's in the inside front of your bulletin. It's a quote by James K.A. Smith from his book, You Are What You Love. And this book is pretty, pretty revolutionary. In fact, you've seen me use quotes from this book in previous worship services because I think it's that powerful. I think it talks about the loves of our heart. And listen to what he says in this quote. He says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. That's what he wants from you. And I think this passage in the Bible is, um, is about that very topic. Dale Bruner, in his introduction to this passage of Scripture, uh, says this, because this is the beginning of Easter week, as you can see, or Easter month, the month of Easter. So we have uh, Palm Sunday next week, we have Good Friday, and we have Easter. And this story takes place at the beginning of Holy Week, at the beginning of the Passion narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Listen to what Dale Brenner, Brunner says about what's happening in this passage. He says, few stories in the Gospel encourage devotion to Jesus as much as this story. It is a portal, in other words, it is a doorway, it is a portal leading into the passion that says the way to enter this holy ground is like this woman with a heart, with a full heart of devotion to Jesus. And Dale Brunner closes by saying, it is a call to worship. I wonder if you would just take a minute and uh, pray with me, and I'm gonna lead us in a prayer where I'm actually gonna invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to work through this passage in your heart to increase your devotion to Jesus. Is that something you would like? Let's pray about that for just a minute. Lord, we come now to your holy word we come now to this story that has a, is a story for the ages, a story that has been preserved throughout the centuries, a story that is to accompany the gospel all around the world, and it's a story of devotion. Lord, many of us who are here today, many of us who are watching online, have had our, our love for you grow cold. We have had other things capture our affections, the affections of our hearts. Lord, on this day, we ask you to nurture 
fresh devotion in each of our hearts and devotion to you. We pray that prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you look at this story, there's three parts to it, and we're going to cover it briefly. We're going to highlight these three parts. It's in Mark 14, beginning at verse 3. If you look at this in your Bible or you look at this in your bulletin, here are the three parts. We're going to talk, first of all, about the woman. Second, we're going to talk about her critics. And third, we're going to talk about her Savior. The woman, her critics, and her Savior. So let's take a look at, that, at what this woman does in this story. It's just an amazing thing that happens. In Mark 14 and verse 3, it says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, Bethany was a small town that was about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Remember, we're on the verge of Passion Week. We're on the verge of Holy Week. And that's where Bethany is located, near the Mount of Olives. You could walk out and you could look over the city of Jerusalem. This was apparently uh, one of the places where Jesus would stay in Passion Week. He was in the house of Simon the leper. This is one of the few names mentioned in this story. So Simon apparently had been a leper. Perhaps Jesus had healed him, but Jesus was in his home. So this last week, Jesus is spending time with Simon the leper, a man with skin diseases, a man who had been healed. It says that as he was reclining at table, which is the way they ate. You know, we eat on chairs, we eat in di our dining rooms, that's the way that we eat. But in those days, they would recline on their left side on this low table, and they would just eat the food that way. So while Jesus was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Now, what's meant by an alabaster flask? Well, it was a, it was a sealed uh, flask that was made of marble, so it contained this perfume, it contained this ointment, this very expensive ointment. And it says that it was very costly. It was a, a, an ointment of pure nard, very costly. We learn later that his crit, or her critics said that she could have sold this for 300 denarii, is what it says in the ESV translation that we're using here. And what that amounts to is a full year of wages. So if you make 75,000 a year, if you make 100,000 a year, whatever you make, Imagine a full year of wages spent on this ointment being poured out on Jesus. That's how costly this was when she poured it out. An alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask, so it was, it was sealed up, but she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. By the way, it was about a, it was about a pound of ointment that was poured out. It was first poured out over his head. We learn in, I think, the Gospel of John that was also poured out on his feet. It probably covered his whole body. So it wasn't like, quite like a Gatorade bath after a football game, but imagine, here's Jesus sitting at dinner and this woman comes, interrupts the party, and pours out this, this flask of ointment, a pound of it, on his head, on his feet, and all over his whole, whole body. Cost costly ointment, a year's wages was the value of that. What an outpouring of devotion. What, what an expression of devotion. Now, it might be tempting because you're going to hear this story, and most of us uh, in our hearts, we, well, I don't know if it's most of us or not, but I can speak for myself. Often when I read the Bible, I take a moralistic approach. I think, well, 
I need to go be more like this lady, and I need to work up all of this devotion. That's not the goal of this message, and that's not the goal of this sermon. What we want to do, rather, is we look at this example, and we want to ask, what is it was happening in her heart? What was going on inside of her? So let's talk for a moment about that. What would inspire this kind of devotion? Let me suggest a couple things that I think were going on in this woman's heart. First of all, recognition. She recognized Jesus for who he was. Jesus had been uh, the whole, you know, the whole gospel of Mark. So this is, this is Mark chapter 14. So she had observed Jesus and see, had, she had seen Jesus for who he was. There was a recognition about Jesus that was going on inside of her. I want to talk a little bit about recognition. It's not a very dramatic word, but I think what recognition means is we have the eyes of our heart opened to see the beauty of Jesus, to see how worthy he is, to see how great he is, to see the greatness of his salvation. Sometimes when I think about singing these songs that we were singing this morning, like I Surrender All and Blessed Assurance and all these words, have you noticed how um, these are words of love, these are words of devotion. And you might go through something in your heart where you go, Man, I don't know if I really feel that. I could just be mouthing the words. I could just be going through the motions externally. So what happens in the heart that brings about that kind of spontaneous, extravagant devotion? Recognition. Give you an example of that. Uh, I asked Molly if I could share this uh, story about her. We had, she had been a Christian for about 30 years when we were attending a church on the east, east side of town, University Presbyterian Church. And week after week, Molly was hearing this pastor preach. They were very simple sermons. They were not theologically deep. They were not super intellectually stimulating. But she was hearing these sermons about Jesus. And you see, Molly, for much of her Christian life, had fallen into, as you know, she began her Christian life with a lot of joy and a lot of devotion. But over the years, as a Christian, her Christian life became more like a performance. It became more like a duty. Uh, It wasn't from the heart. And so she would walk around with a burden of all these rules and all the things that she needed to do to make God love her more. As she heard the gospel from this pastor, his name was, his name was Mark, and uh, she would talk to me about how God was working in her heart. He would say things like, when Christ poured out himself for you, he not only died for his, your sins, but he also gave you his righteousness. And he would say, what that means is that there is nothing you can do, there is no amount of good you can do to make God love you more. Molly knew that intellectually, but she hadn't really felt it emotionally. She hadn't experienced and felt the gospel. So she would hear this preaching week after week, and she would talk to me about how her life was changing, how she was starting to believe the, the gospel, and she'd been a Christian for 30 years. Furthermore, I'm thinking, honey, you're married to me. I mean, you already know this stuff. I could have taught you this stuff. Why do you think this pastor is that great? And I would think, his sermons aren't that deep. I mean, doesn't he even have a commentary? I mean, this just like, but he, was, he, but he was very vulnerably presenting this good news of the gospel to my wife's heart. 
And it was such good news for her that it, it just set her free and it changed her life. I think what was going on in Molly's heart was recognition. Now Molly would be here today, but she wasn't feeling well, she's, so she's kind of sick at home. She told me before we left, or before I left, she said, Mike, I could come to church, I could push through and I could come to church, and I said, honey, if you come to church, God will love you even more. But she didn't believe that anymore. No, that's an April Fool's joke, didn't do that. But she, but it's that, you know, there's that, it, it's, it's amazing when you have this sense of freedom that you do things out of love for God. It totally transformed my wife's heart and it makes, makes her want to pour out herself the way this woman does in this passage. So recognition I think is, is uh, really good. There's something that Jesus said that I think gets at what also goes on inside the heart that kind of stirs up our devotion and stirs up our love. Jesus in Luke chapter seven in a very similar story, it was a woman that came into the home of a guy named Simon the Pharisee, and there was a big dinner party, and she poured out this ointment on Jesus' feet and rubbed his, his feet with her hair, and the Pharisee was criticizing her for that. It was another critic. And what Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee was, he said, what's going on here is that, in, in so many words, Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much loves much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. So when you and I get in touch with our sins, when we get in touch with the gospel and realize how much we've been forgiven, it, it, just, it just creates this devotion in our heart. When we realize that we are more sinful than we've ever imagined, but we've more, we're more loved than we've ever dreamed. That's why this morning, when we did that confession time, when we were led in confession, uh, we, we, I think we started with Psalm 119 and how we don't keep God's law. You guys, that is a beautiful, beautiful moment because we need to get in touch with the fact that we're more sinful than we've ever imagined. And then we have that announcement of the gospel. You remember that, Romans 8.1? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we realize... I'm more loved than I've ever dreamed. You guys, that is, that is so life-changing. And I think that's part of nurturing our love for God. Now, let's go on to the second uh, part of this story here. We, look at, we see this woman that came in and this, um, you know, a year's worth of wages, a pound of ointment, dumped it on Jesus. Did you notice the critics? Did you notice the critics in this passage? And I'm so glad this story is preserved because I want you to notice her critics. This was, a, this was really a tense moment. So if you look at verse four, it says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And it says at the end of verse five, they scolded her. They scolded her. Do you realize how delicious this must have felt? to these people to scold this woman who had wasted a year's wages. They said, why this waste? And then they played this, this really important, this, this trump card, you could have given this money to the poor. Can you see how they're trying to heap shame and guilt on this woman? And it says that they scolded her. Do you realize how fun it is, how delicious it is, how good it feels 
to scold someone for how they've chosen to use their money. There's ways that, boy, and I see it so much in our culture, I see it so much in the lives of Christians. Praise, praise God, we've been spared so much of this in our church, but I notice in my own heart that tendency to scold or to, to have disdain about someone else's choices. What is going on in this situation? What are they, they doing? Well, one is they are playing this trump card of this, all this money could have been, could have been given to the poor. Well, we learn elsewhere that the, the lead critic is a guy by the name of, Ju of Judas who has been pilfering money. And a few verses later, we learned that he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was all about acquiring money. He was a hypocrite. He didn't care about the poor but, uh, because of what he said. But so what is, what is it that's going, inside, going on inside the heart of these critics in this passage? And this is something, uh, I was reading one commentary that talked about how this passage is a mirror for the church. It is a mirror for Christians, and it's a mirror for me. Because what's going, inside, going on inside of them is a kind of, of pride or self-righteousness whereby they are condemning another person for their choices, and they themselves don't even live in light of what they're saying. So there's hypocrisy there. And there is a self-righteousness. That is at the root of that scolding. Have you, have you noticed over the last several weeks, we come to these places in the Bible where uh, one of the greatest sins of Scripture is the sin of pride. One of the greatest sins of Scripture is that of self-righteousness. Remember what Jesus said, the person who is forgiven little loves little. Let me tell you how self-righteousness affects these guys, how it affects our lives. I've said this before, but I'm gonna to add to it. Self-righteousness will destroy your marriage. It will divide your church, but it will also dissolve your devotion. You see, these individuals did not have a devotion for Jesus. Self-righteousness will dissolve your devotion because they're focused on themselves, they're focused on their pride. In fact, we see in this passage one of the themes of the Passion Week narrative, the Holy Week narrative in the book of Mark and the other Gospels is this rejection of Jesus, the, the, the suffering Savior. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was despised and rejected of men. So these individuals are not just, not just um, scolding this woman, but their devotion to Jesus has been dissolved. And furthermore, self-righteousness will diminish your empathy. We're gonna see later on that the way Jesus, the way the Savior responded to this woman was with empathy, but that was not true of them. They attacked this woman. They didn't see her heart. They didn't think the best of her. They didn't notice her love for Jesus. They just criticized. They said, why this waste? That is what self-righteousness will do. It will destroy your marriage, it will divide your church, it will dissolve your devotion, and it will diminish your empathy. That is what's happening in this story. So I wonder if you've ever thought about that in regard to self-righteousness and how, you know, Martin Luther used to talk about this, and, and it's, it's, one of, it's what the, the Pharisees' problem was, it's, what, it's a problem in my heart where my default is works righteousness. My default is self-righteousness. And so one of the things that's a really healthy exercise for, for many of us is to hold that mirror up to our lives and listen to our scolding words 
The scolding words toward our spouse, the scolding words towards other people, the scolding words to people with whom we disagree, to hold up this passage as a mirror to our hearts. And I would encourage you, I would challenge you to develop a high sensitivity filter for self-righteousness. It is so life-changing to be able to just repent of that. In fact, I would say in this passage, when, uh, you know, obviously this woman has discovered, discovered God's forgiveness, and that's, that's why this devotion is so strong. She's been, she knows she's been forgiven much. I would say to those of us, including myself in this church, who struggle with self-righteousness, I want to give you some good news this morning. It is worth it to bring that to Jesus as well. That might be our worst sin, the sin of pride. It was the sin of pride in the garden that brought down Adam and Eve. C.S. Lewis talks about that. Our sin of pride and moralism and self-righteousness might be worse than some of the gross sins that we condemn in others. And so it's good to regularly acknowledge that, to see that, to repent of that, and then bring that to Jesus and experience his cleansing and his forgiveness. And ask God by, for the gospel to bring about a gospel humility in our hearts and how we relate to people. The woman, her critics, and now her savior. Jesus leaps to her defense in this passage. They're, they're scolding her. Jesus leaps to her defense. So look at what he says in verse six. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Isn't, aren't those the most amazing words that Jesus would look at this pound of ointment worth a year's worth of, 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 uh, of wages? He is drenched in it, and he says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, I wonder why he would say that. I wonder why that was a beautiful thing. Well, look at what he says in verse seven. He says, for you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. It's an interesting verse here because uh, it's, it, it can put us in kind of a dilemma, can it not? You wonder, this verse could probably be misused by people who do not want to spend their resources to alleviate poverty in the world. And you could use that verse and kind of go down that road. But that would go against the whole teaching of the Bible. In Psalm, uh, I want to read, I want to share with you a great verse from Psalm 41 and verse 1, and it just captures the teaching of Scripture. It says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In Psalm 41.1, it says that. And all throughout the Bible, God's people are called to alleviate the suffering of the poor. So that's not what Jesus is talking about here. But he's saying the poor you always have with you, but that can be, mis that can be misunderstood. I want to share with you something that uh, just was a, a fresh thought for me. I learned it from a couple of other writers, but I thought, I thought wow, this is really powerful. The context of this story, if you read what comes before and what comes after, before it you read that the chief priests are plotting to murder Jesus. 
After this story, you read that Judas is going to betray Jesus. In Psalm 41, verse 9, there is a verse about being betrayed by a friend that Jesus quotes later and applies it to Judas from Psalm 41. You see, Jesus is the ultimate poor person. He has identified himself with the poor. The Bible says that you know the Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that those, though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. How did Jesus become poor? Well, theologians talk about the humiliation of Christ. He was poor in his birth in that nativity scene. He was poor throughout his life. He said the foxes have, have holes, so the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was poor in all kinds of ways. He was poor because he was humiliated by his opponents. And he was poor when he went to the cross and he poured out his life, he poured out his blood for our forgiveness of sins. And 2 Corinthians chapter eight, Paul writes that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. In a way, this woman Jesus is not saying, he says, the poor you always have with you. In other words, the church is always going to be called to do good to the poor. We believe in that, good news for the city. We believe in things like uh, ministries that alleviate the poor. We believe in that, the scripture calls us to that. But there's one poor person, he says, you will not always have me. In other words, the poor person that was right in front of them, they were neglecting, but she was not. She was she was, pouring, she was pouring out this ointment on Jesus, who is the ultimate poor person. He says, he's not gonna be with you, so do that now. Why else is it beautiful? Well, it says in verse eight, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body be beforehand for burial. Now, we're not sure how much this woman really recognized about Jesus. You know, we saw in, the, in verse three that she poured this oil, she anointed Jesus with this, this pure nard. In the Old Testament, anointing was for a king, and he was the, the Messiah, the anointed one. So in a way, we see in this passage that though his people rejected him, though the Romans rejected him, this woman is anointing him as the king and the Messiah. And then it says here that she was anointing him, his body beforehand, for burial. We're not, I'm not sure how much she knew about the cross. Maybe she understood that, but the way Jesus saw it is that this was really a prophecy of his death on the cross. I understand that criminals would not be anointed back then. Normally, people would be anointed and they would be ready for burial, but not criminals. And Jesus would be crucified as a criminal. But what she is doing is she's gonna give him what he's not gonna get. She is anointing him and preparing for his burial. In a way, this is a, this is a prophecy of Jesus' death and pouring out his life for us. And so you have the gospel right there in this verse. And this, then verse nine. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Isn't that an amazing thought? Uh, one writer talks about uh, this fact that, that her story would be told wherever the gospel go, goes around the whole world. 
And he says, it's a reminder for all of us that when the gospel goes out, to not forget the supremacy of Jesus. When we, when we serve the poor, let's not forget the supremacy of Jesus. When we bring the gospel to the whole world, let's not forget the supremacy of Jesus. You know, I think about, it's amazing because in a way, Jesus is anticipating in verse nine the worldwide mission, the worldwide scope, the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. And I wonder how often we're tempted to say, well, that money could have been used for something else. Why would we spend that money on global missions and bringing the gospel to the whole world? We might even say, why this waste? I just learned of a church this morning. Uh, it's one of our sister churches. It's up in St. Augustine. It's called Good News Church. And since 2000, I think 2005, they have helped plant 150 churches around the world. That church gives 13% of their budget to church planting around the world, and they've been involved in helping plant all those churches. Now, somebody could look at that and say, all that money, why this waste? That could have been spent on something else. But then you realize that every one of those churches that gets planted is going to increase care for the poor around the world exponentially. And that's also the beauty of this, to always keep the gospel out in front because when the gospel gets a hold of people's hearts, as Lake Baldwin Church, we believe in caring for the poor and alleviating the needs of the poor. But if our church weren't here, if we weren't preaching the gospel, we would not have the capacity to do that. That's the power of the gospel. So wherever the gospel is proclaimed around the world, this will be spoken of her. She will be remembered. And that's actually what's happening this morning as we go through this text. So how do you cultivate, how do you cultivate devotion in your life? I said at the beginning, it's not, about, it's not about just trying to be more devoted. I really think it's what God does in our hearts. It's what he produces in our hearts. The, uh, back to these North Carolina fans, these, these basketball fans, why are we not excited and they're so excited. Well, they know that Michael Jordan went to school there. They know about the storied history of the tobacco road between North Carolina and Duke. They know about the story of their school. They have this proud basketball heritage. And so because they know the story, they have all this passion for it. Well, let me take a stab at what I believe God is doing in your heart as a part of this church in some way or another, whether you're kind of new to the faith or whether you're mature in your faith. Let me take a stab at what I think God is doing because I think he's done it in my heart. It's what I referred to about what he did in Molly's heart. I believe that God, through hearing the gospel week after week, through confessing our sins, through being part of a gospel community, that God is teaching us, he's causing us to recognize and to experience the great story of scripture. The more you get to know God's word, the more you see changed lives around you, the more you learn to worship him. What I believe happens with that is that our devotion to Christ is nurtured over time. I don't think it happens necessarily quickly. I don't think you can work it up. But as we expose ourselves to the story of the gospel through his word and through his church week after week, even as we take the Lord's Supper, What's happening is he is nurturing our love and our devotion to him. I wonder if you'd pray with me right now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.
Lord, we all prayed a prayer a few moments ago that you would use this passage of Scripture to nurture devotion in our hearts. We pray that you would continue to do that even in these moments as we set aside these elements, the bread, the wine, from their ordinary use and for its sacred use at this time.